We are live. Welcome to today's episode of the Survival Podcast, which is episode 3150. It would have been cool if it could have come on Friday. I just like round numbers at the end of the week. It is what it is, right? 3150 times we've gotten together with new episodes anyway, not counting rewinds and stuff like that, some specials. Um, Today is going to be mostly feedback from the audience, questions that came to me in email. We're going to talk about cracky hydroponics again. I have a question in mind, but there was another question that came in that, like, I think sometimes when people use the word cracky, they don't really know what they're talking about. I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just, like, if you start adding to something, it stops being the thing that it is, especially when it's a minimalist discipline. And there's things it does well and things it really doesn't. Um, with so many people looking to produce some of their own food, though, I think hydroponics in general along with Kratky as one specific method, is a great thing uh, for people to learn about. So if nothing else, at least we can produce, you know, some greens and things like that and, and do that indoors. Uh, we're going to talk about more about the dangers of people who should not have power getting it and how we can see that in people that decided they had power, even though they didn't during the scamdemic. Uh, I also have an update on the IRS video I showed on Friday. That video actually turned out to be from 2017. I'll tell you why that fits right in with our uh, dangers of people that should not have power gaining it and uh, and how it doesn't change anything I said about it. I, I didn't know it was from 2017. I didn't know when it was from. It, it really doesn't matter. Uh, it has nothing to do with this new bill, obviously, because it's the money's not there yet. It's just been done. Uh, so I don't think that anybody who's drawing a corollary there really probably shouldn't have. I have a question on when you bother moving to an LLC or an S-Corp for a side hustle. You know, I'm going to say CPA and tax attorney. But in this case, I wouldn't even consider it unless there's going to be something that's going to get added on because this is a very specific short-term basis situation. Um, and then we have some real evidence that homeschooling is starting to really hurt the government schools, just like some crazy redneck hippie duck farmer said two years ago was about to happen. Like when everybody got their kids sent home for the COVID, I was like, oh, this is it. This is going to be bad. I got four. I'll just give you the headlines, four articles that show you that not only is it happening, but the state is beginning to shit its britches about it. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's the case. Uh, I have a question on preserving food, especially meat, using salt. I actually want to talk a little bit about this today. Not a lot. I think we'll do a whole show on it. But I want to tell you the reason that historically – Salted pork was such a important commodity in the world. Uh, right up until we started to have things like actual refrigeration, uh, salt pork was one of the most eaten things uh, by people out there. And it's probably not why you – if you ever watch Townsend, J.A. Townsend and, and, and Son, you may, uh, you may know what I'm going to tell you today because that's where I learned about it. And it, it was fascinating to me when I did. And salt pork, when we talk about it this way, guys, we're not talking about that little piece of like bacon-looking backstrap thing. We're talking about like a whole pig in a barrel, like every head, head to tail, snout, everything, all the meat in a barrel covered in salt. And that was an incredibly important part of the diet not so long ago. Uh, this is not a Bitcoin breakout, but we are going to talk about uh, Bitcoin and crypto a little bit today because I have a question I keep getting. How does a hardware wallet provide additional security 
since you use the same type of, you know, 12 word backup phrase. Well, it's not about the 12 word backup phrase. This will be a short one, but it's an important thing to understand. And I'm going to finish with something. It's not really a question. I'm thinking about developing a tiny home income property, multiple tiny homes designed from the get go to be an income producing property. And I think it's an opportunity that's out there that a lot of people are, are starting to exploit and looking at. And I think there's maybe some ways to do it really, really well. It's not really a preparedness topic from a standpoint of I'm not talking about building a community we can all run away and bug out to, though there would be always that option. Um, but it is a preparedness topic because nothing makes you more sustainable than positive cash flow and low tax footprints. And one of the best ways in the world to do that is real estate uh, and owning your own business. So I thought that'd be a good Good topic for today. Hunter's asking me how the flood is at my place. Um, we'll talk about that when we get started. I want to go ahead and, because uh, it's going to be interesting. I have something to tell you that, that we've been dealing with this weekend, and then the rain came. And it, there's a strong possibility there could be a disruption, either temporary or, like, kill the live feed today. It depends. I'll tell you one of the reasons why that could happen. It might not. But it's possible. Before we do that, I wanted to uh, remind you guys about our sponsor today today. And our sponsor of the day today is John Bush. And he has a budget homesteading uh, webinar coming up, Summit. It's going to be really cool. And since he has a great video explaining it, I thought I would just go ahead and play his video. Hey, it's John. And Rebecca, we are so excited to tell you about the Homesteading on a Budget Workshop. That's right. There's all sorts of inflation, supply chain problems, economic disruption, and we think it's absolutely important that people become very conscious of how they spend, how they prep, and how they live their lives. Absolutely. So we'll be rolling through all sorts of topics, food production, shelter, doing more with less. That's We're right. bringing in industry experts to help shed some light on these different topics. Yeah, Rebecca and I moved on to a 10-acre homestead about a year ago. And when we first met four or five years ago, we both had the same dream of owning property, building an intentional community. And we knew in order to accomplish that dream, we had to make some sacrifices. So what did we do? We ended up moving into a 400 square foot tiny home with four people. We lived in there full time for over a year. I was there, well, almost two years, really. Um, so working in the tiny home industry, embracing the minimalist lifestyle, also that we could save up a down payment for this beautiful 10-acre homestead. So in the workshop, we want to teach you some of the secrets that we learned on how to stretch your dollar, how to do more with less. We're going to talk about strategic grocery runs. We're going to talk about some of the food preparedness items that we like to buy in bulk. We're going to talk about how to beat inflation by stocking up and buying in bulk in the present moment. And then even if you don't need it for prepping, you could just mix it into your, your food for the week. Uh, we're going to talk about food production. We're going to talk about how to grow food. Even if you live in an apartment, your back porch, whatever it may be, you want to tell about our special guest? Yeah, we actually are really honored to invite Nomad Brad to speak about living tiny, doing more with less, and also Marjorie Wildcraft uh, from the Grow Network. Yeah, there's Nomad Brad right there, actually. Say hi, Nomad Brad. Hey, 
Nomad Brad is the first community member. We now have a second community member, but he lived, he converted a U-Haul box van into this awesome little nice luxurious cruiser that he cruises around. He's a nomad. I've seen on tiny home tours. And he's a living testament. He actually lives here free of charge. He provides so much value. He's such a good guy. We're about to go to the beach. He's going to take care of the house, take care of the pets. And so he is an example of how he lives big on very little. So he's going to teach you some of the secrets that he used as a nomad. Of course, Marjorie Wildcraft is an expert in food production. She's going to teach us yeah, all sort of high, plentiful, bountiful ways to grow food. So we're going to teach you that much more. We're going to talk about budgeting. We're going to talk about cutting unwanted expenses. And really, it's all going to culminate in this idea that we can put forward a vision for how we want to live our lives. And if we're conscious about our life design, we can take practical steps in the present moment so as to create a better future for ourselves, our family, and the future generations to come. So, Amen. Amen. All right. So we hope you'll check us out at the Exit and Build Homestead on a Budget Workshop. Click the button and register today. See you there. So, guys, um, definitely worth checking that out. There'll be links in the audio notes uh, as soon as this, this show's done. It'll be about an hour after it's done. Uh, the audio side will go out on all the podcast feeds. And there's also a link to it right down in the video notes down there. And uh, there's all kinds of yummy links down there worth checking out. So a lot of you guys watch these videos, you never look at the description, and there's always good stuff there to check out. Uh, also, real quick reminder, I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat and video comments or Instagram comments or anything like that. I don't do that. Lots of scams going on. That's your daily warning. So let's start out with, like, what? why might there be a disruption? Well, because my wife may have to come in here and ask me to make a decision that is uh, is thousands of dollars. I may have to talk to a contractor, some things like that. Why? So Friday night, I got up to use the bathroom, and I flushed the toilet, and it just didn't sound right. Just didn't sound right. Nothing to do with me and my bathroom habits, just the flush. It was just a, it was a number one, right? And it did flush, but it didn't sound right. So I went and turned the water on, and there was no water at all. We're on a well. That's always a problem when you're on a well and there's no water. Power's on, so, you know, we're not there. You know, I've been worried this year that we can end up with a dry well, but I, I really don't believe that's the case. I hope to God that's not the case. And hopefully if it, it was, then this will recharge the aquifer, uh, this rain we just had. Uh, I think the pump just died. Uh, it's an old pump. I don't know exactly how old. But it was very old when I moved in. Very, very old. Uh, last, last winter when we had that big freeze, uh, I had the, the plumbing people out for some other stuff and I had them check on the well while they were here. Cause we actually, one of the things you need to know, guys, if you buy a property that's on a well, you need to, before you need them, find local plumbers that work on wells because most plumbers don't work on wells. So the guy looks at it and he said, you know, you could have five years or more left in this pump and they're expensive. And my pump's the kind that sits on the top of the well, not down inside, not a submersible. It may have been here since 1978 when they built the house. That's how old this thing could be. And I said, you know, I'm in the preparedness. Uh, I'm going to have to do this sooner or later anyway. And he said, don't worry. The way we work, we will not leave you more than a day without a pump. Well, it went out on Friday night. Turns out the well guys that work for this place, they don't work weekends. Then we had this huge rain event hit. And so they had a a prior uh, to us today. 
uh, that they probably got set back on because most well work is outside. We had literal deluge of rain, which we desperately needed. Um, so they're not here yet. I don't know if they've called my wife yet, but when you have a problem like this, it can be, hey, we need a few grand to replace a, a, a pump, or it could be like there's help, like all kinds of shit. So if that happens, I can't wait on that. I'll have to call it wherever we're at, and I'll have to deal with it, and then I'll have to finish the rest audio only. So that could happen today. But I think this is an interesting prepper thing. So this was another one of those things where, like, this is inconvenient. It's a pain in the ass, but we're fine. You know, I had one of my friends ask, well, what are you doing for water? I'm like, well, we have 100 gallons in jugs just just for drinking and cooking and stuff like that. I have a 1,500-gallon tank that's completely full of rainwater because I haven't been using it because we've been in a drought and I haven't wanted to use it. You know, and so I've been, like, hauling five-gallon buckets of water in from that tank for things like flushing toilets because I don't want to use the, the pool water with the chlorine in it into my septic system. Um, but it's it's just... You know, we did the show last week on dry cabins, and my wife's like, I don't really think I'd want to live that way. And after this weekend, she's like, no, never, never going to happen. Running water is is great. So I actually did pick on something that I could have set up that would make this easier right now had I done it. Um, and the reason I didn't do it is even though I thought about it, it would involve burying about 250 feet of pipe. And on my property, that's a miserable experience. And this week when I was talking to one of my first week, I was talking to one of my friends about this problem. He brought it up. And I said, yeah, I thought about that. And then I went, you know, what you could have done, you could have basically just set up some hose bibs on either side. And during an emergency, you could have just run freaking garden hose. And who cares if it's on top of the ground, if it's only for an emergency. And then I texted him back and said, but I'm going to pretend that's not true because I'm pissed now that I didn't do it. But uh, that project will probably get done now. And it probably won't be necessary, but it'll be there and it will probably document it as well. So we were without water since Friday night and it is Monday afternoon. Then we had huge flooding rates. Like there's flash flood alerts. I bet you there's some cars washed off the road down from me uh, where we're at. If we get a flood, I'm looking for an arc. Like if we get a real flood here, I'm looking for an arc to get on. Like it, it is, we're just not in a place where we're going to have the flash flooding. Um, but it's pretty severe rainfall. We've needed it. I don't know how much yet. Uh, the TV guy says something like uh, five inches. I have the 21-gallon rubber, or not rubber, made the mixing tubs, concrete mixing tubs set out for the ducks. I've been having to rob water from the ponds to give the ducks water. And uh, I, so I gave them like half their tubs, and I threw the other half tubs, let them dry out from algae and everything anyway. And I had a couple of them that were that landed where they were topside up so they could fill up with water. I think they're full, and they're over seven inches deep. That's a lot of rain. So I did put out a video today, just a little short two-minute video with the swales, if you want to check that out. we ha Guys, you tell people you're in a drought, but what happens is they look, like, if they're, like, inquisitive, they look up and go, yeah, it sucks to be in North Texas right now, but it's not that bad. What people don't understand is my area and north – a little bit west and a little bit east have been in this weird bubble. I don't know what's been going on, but it's like, it's almost like we're cursed. Like you'll see a storm come. It's not even going to be a great storm, but at least it's a storm. And it looks like an amoeba, like going like, like a white blood cell eating something like a, a thing except, except it's empty in the middle, right? Like it's almost like the rain just had been going around us. There's a creek that I take my grandson fishing at. Um, Nobody I've talked to, and I've talked to some pretty old-time folks, I mean, people in their 80s around here. I've got neighbors that are up there. 
And uh, no one's ever seen that creek stop running that, that, that I can find that's alive. And it stopped running this year. So we really need this. And, you know, here we go already, Eddie. I'm, I'm not picking on you, Eddie, but, you know, geoengineering, weather modification. No, it's it's freaking weather, guys. Like, it's not everybody that had that. I don't think that the the people in government put a bubble around Jack Spierko. Like, I'm not that important. I know my pay grade. It's pretty low. Anyway, I I, I, I want to dig into some stuff that you guys sent me. So I had a couple questions on Cracky Hydro recently. The first one I did answer by email, and it's something you guys need to know. If you want to email me for the show, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the email. Make sure TSPC, like it's one word, all caps, is in the headline that way, or the subject. That way I'll dig out of spam hell if it goes in there. And a lot of times you won't hear an answer on the air. I can only do so many of those. But I answer, you know, two-sentence answers to tons of these every day. I really try to be uh, willing to help people when I can. And a lot of times if it's like more of a topical thing, a lot of stuff that comes to me does end up on Twitter and MeWe and, and all that stuff as well. So I, I try to make sure that uh, I'm doing a lot with the stuff you guys send me. Anyway, the first guy, he said, well, I want to do Kratky, and I want to use solar, and I want to put air pumps into it. Okay, it wouldn't be Kratky anymore. The whole point of Kratky is, and it's from Dr. Kratky from uh, University of Hawaii, Um you let the water evaporate, and as the water drops down, you end up with an air gap for the roots. And Dr. Dr. Cracky has some amazing greenhouse growing stuff on his uh, YouTube channel. It's really worth checking out. And they grow some really big, large-scale plants with it, and that's fine. And you have to understand why Dr. Cracky came up with his method. He came up with his method because he cares about the world, and there's all kinds of places in the world where there's, the, the soil's not great, but you can ship a couple bags of cheap fertilizer in. And it's cheap. It's cheap to ship because if it's dry fertilizer that you're mixing with water, you can, I mean, just, it's a massive amount of growing you can do with, let's say, 50 pounds of, of, of this, this fertilizer. Um, 50 pounds, 50 pounds, and 25 for the, 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 the standard mixed stuff that, that he uses. Um, and so it's natural that he'd say, well, look, we can take this big-ass garbage can and grow a giant freaking pumpkin out of it or something like that because look how much food we can produce. It's not what it's really ideal for, though. It's ideal for quick-turn crops because as the water level goes down, you get to a point where you do your cut and harvest, and then you replant and you refill. That's what it's ideal for. Now, he's done all kinds of things with float valves and, and, and what have you. But the reason he came up with that method is so that you could grow food in places that do not have any power, and the cost of power is prohibitive to feeding people. And the landscape itself is prohibitive to growing in arable land. So that's the why behind his method. As soon as we start moving water with a pump or moving air with a pump, it can be crack key-ish. It can have, you know, you can allow the air gap to, to form, but it's not crack key anymore. And it doesn't need to be. We can keep the water mostly full if we're pumping air or moving water because it's all about the oxygen. So just understand that. So I, I told this guy he wanted to do solar and air pumps. I'm like, it's fine, but don't worry about it because you want it to be crabby. You're doing that for the fact that pumping air into the water actually makes the plants grow better. And then you don't have to stay married to this kind of evaporation concept with crabby. Once you have power available. Now, 
the other person that emailed me about this, they want to grow oregano in the winter with cracky. Okay. And they wanted to know first, should I save some seed from my outdoor plants, plant it into the little rapid rooter plugs, and then grow it from seed? And I actually don't think that's a great idea because oregano is a fairly slow-growing crop. Or can they dig it up like rooted parts and then put that into a crafty system? You absolutely can. I do not know how well it'll work. But this is where it goes to the, to the point that I wanted to address today for people with hydro in general. I don't care if it's cracky. I don't care if it's ebb and flow. I don't care if it's an air pump or airlift. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's aquaponics. When it comes to we're growing a thing in water or in inert media that is, you know, has its nutrient like an ebb and flow bed with Lika, we're bringing the nutrient and water to the plant and then it's going away. Anything like that. He asked, you know, what's the general concept of taking care of perennials in, an, in, a, in a cracky system anyway. Hydro does not excel for it. It's not that it won't work. And I think that thing y'all just saw go across the, the lens of the camera is a spider. I have a spider living on my camera and I've been leaving him alone. He's pretty cool. Anyway, um, it's really not ideal. It's not that you can't do it. It's not that you can't do it. It's that your root mass keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you end up in a situation where you have to do a lot of pruning of roots and the plant itself. And then, you know, different perennials have different issues. Now, is there precedent for it? Well, there's an awful lot of people growing an awful lot of cannabis in hydro and aquaponic systems. And I think they grow that as a perennial. I don't know if maybe they just keep cloning, but I know they have a pretty long life cycle with them before They retire a plant, let's say. Um, and then Eddie's saying right here, I took cuttings and added to my aquaponics in the greenhouse. They rooted, keep all winter, transplanted out in spring. Do that with basil, rosemary, and many others. See, and he's got an annual in there, and you could do that. And I think this is, this is what I would advise. Take cuttings, and if you want to go ahead and dig down in the ground and get some that already has some root on it, fine, that'll speed things up. Grow that through your winter so you have fresh herbage available. And let the plan be, I'm going to maintain the roots so that I can actually get them out of the dadgone root cup. And I'm going to plant that out in the spring. I think that is, so Eddie, good on you. That's exactly where I was going with that. And I think there's a lot of things that hydro grows well But you need to think about the root mass. So an, and actually a biannual that has this going on is Swiss chard. Swiss chard is basically a beetroot type crop and, uh, it, it grows a massive root and you're unable to, you know, pull it. So I find that a lot of these larger root crops will do better with hydro and like an ebb and flow bed using Lika, which is really loose and easy to get even big root masses out of and things like that as well. Or go ahead and grow them as annuals, take them to like one or two harvests, pop them out, replant. And I think that most of you guys, unless you're going to be greenhouse growing or something like that, when it comes to hydro, you're better off quick turn, high dollar, good tasting, high impact in flavor and nutrient crops. So 
yes, you know, your lettuces and spinaches and all. That's great stuff to grow, your shards, things like that. But there's also some things you can do that really give you a lot of punch and bang for the buck. Um, and if you guys hear the dog barking, that's probably the well guys are here. At least I hope it is. I, I really hope they don't have too late today. Um, so one would be something like wasabi arugula. Huge punch. Watercress has a lot of flavor and a lot of impact, and it grows beautifully. And you can literally grow that until, like, okay, this one's got so much root mass, I don't want to deal with it anymore. You just pinch off it and make new ones out of the one that you're kind of retiring or moving outside. And I just think that most of you guys that are doing hydro, you're doing it indoors, you're using grow lights, and when you start trying to grow bigger plants, you get into a position where it's it's too much energy from artificial lighting to make the, the output worth doing it. Um, so I would rather grow a whole bunch of little bits of oregano than try to grow one, because oregano gets to be a, a fairly large plant. I've never done oregano with hydro before, so I'm really not sure. Um, I have no trouble overwintering it here. Uh, we just harvest as much of it as we feel that we need for dried oregano through the, the, the darth of winter, and we go on with the last. But I grow the hell out of basil in the winter in my hydro systems. The other thing that, that I was asked is, do you adjust the lights on like a pulley system? And I haven't, and I have done multiple iterations, and I've gone to more of, I just use hydro now as a starting system for my plants in the spring going into the gardens, uh, or I do a simple crack key for, for, for greens upstairs in one of my little mini greenhouses. In those environments, I really don't need to, but if I was going to seriously be growing a lot of hydroponic stuff indoors, with grow lights, I would rig up some way to be able to put the lights down. Even the barinas, as good as they are, you'll get better results if you're closer to the plants and you're able over time to raise them up. Even if they grow well, you'll get less stringy plants. You'll get more kind of beefy, honey badger, wide-bodied plants, which is what you're really looking for. Uh, next up, I want to talk about an email I got that I thought was really interesting. A guy sent me an email. He said the badge is the problem, basically, but it doesn't have to be a badge. And he was referring to what I was talking about last week on Friday's show about these idiots in this IRS, you know, criminal investigation recruiting video. And these these kids were basically um, college students that were having like, oh, it's like a career day. That's what that video is from. And so they take these idiots. And they give them blue guns. If you don't know what a blue gun is, I don't think the rest of this is going to make sense to you anyway. Um, it's exactly what it sounds like, right? And so they, they put them in a position where they're like pretending to be criminal investigative agents. And that does maybe mitigate a little bit of them sweeping each other with the guns and stuff like that. Um, but what I said is those types of people are very dangerous. When you start arming people and giving them a badge and and conditioning them to think that the people that they're supposed to be serving are actually a threat to them, that they end up shooting and killing compliant, nonviolent, unarmed people. And this happens with cops. It happens with people like, in fact, the, you know what they said? This is an interesting thing I learned over the weekend. The IRS, uh, their criminal investigative department, you know, the guys with the guns that go out and point guns at people, they have literally fired their guns more in negligent discharges than they have in actual legitimate use. And when I say legitimate, I'm paying, playing fast and loose with that, guys. Don't call me on it. I mean in their eyes. So they have all these people, thousands and thousands of armed agents, thousands of guns, millions of rounds of ammunition, all this training, 
and they've, you know, nearly blown their own foot off or uh, put a hole in their own leg more than they've ever had to actually fire a weapon in a actual operation. Which I guess is good in a way. That means they're not out there. Well, I don't know. I didn't find out what the negligent discharge number is, but I bet it's pretty high with people like this. But what this guy wrote in about it, he said, think about the people that during the whole COVID thing were screaming at people that had no actual authority, but society had kind of given them a pass because they're yelling at the person for not wearing a mask or something like that. And I think that it actually was a really astute observation, and it does show the problem. And it's not the badge, it's the power that's the problem. The badge is just one form of power we give people. And this is why, at best... Yeah, or I should say at work, at, at the, the, the maximum level that any state can be without this eventually being the result, this totalitarianism becoming the result is an absolute minarchy where the, the role of any form of rules enforcement is the preservation of individual rights. That's it. Like who's the victim? And you better actually have a victim. The fact that you walked into a wall and hurt yourself doesn't make you a victim. The fact that he said something that made your butt hurt, that doesn't make you a victim. Like, where was your property or your rights interfered with? And as soon as we go past that, which we've gone, like, we can't even see that place anymore. As soon as we go past that, this type of authoritarian assholism is a natural result. And it's an interesting thing because no matter how well-intentioned you are, you can find yourself at times in danger of becoming this type of thing. And you can see it when you have any authority whatsoever. I've had to always check myself with the ability like to delete comments on websites that I've run or to send, you know, to legitimately censor people. Like, and I, I make no apologies for it. If you go read my disclaimers and policies, there are certain things I do not allow at the survivalpodcast.com or in our groups. Now, Unlike big tech, I'm very clear about those, and I'm, I'm uniform with enforcement. But i got to tell you, there's been times where somebody's just been popping their mouth off, but technically within the terms of service that I wrote, and you just you want, and then you know I'm not going to do that, right? Unless they really become a problem, unless they're a problem for other people, unless they're interfering with the flow of the group, all right, they, they, can, they can be heard, they can speak. But the temptation's there. And I think if you haven't experienced that temptation, if you've never had any real clout or real authority, if you've never been able to look at somebody and just go, you know what, I'm tired of hearing you today, you're fired from a job. If you've never had military rank and you're like, you know what, I'm tired of you not listening, drop and give me 20 push-ups. And, and those two things are perfect examples of things that are used often properly. Physical uh, exertion as a form of discipline in the military when used properly is effective. Terminating an employee who is not doing their job and is going to cost somebody else their job because of their incompetence is valid. But both of those are forms of authority that if you, if, once you have them, you understand, well, what's it like to have the authority to just, you know, decide you don't like the way somebody's driving, turn a light on, pull them over, yank them out of their car, start asking them about their life, shit you have no business asking. 
You know you can call your buddy cop with a dog, and he'll alert on that car if the guy's popping off to you, because they'll tell the dog to alert. And I'm not saying all cops do this all the time. I'm saying this is this is the reality of the power that they have. Or I don't really like somebody, but I work for the government, and I found this person, and I can make their life miserable, maybe not even directly, maybe even indirectly. It is the absolute danger of giving people power, and this is what you then have to understand. Any power, this is one of my laws of life, guys, any power that you give the state will be used. That's the first part of it. You give the state a power, it will use that power. Right? And don't say, well, it can't happen here. That's when it's about to happen here, when people are saying that. Okay, next, the state is actually made up of people. It really is. The entity itself is the bigger problem, but within the entity are hundreds, maybe thousands of people that interact with the edge of humanity, right, where the state and, and the rest of humanity interact. There might be tens of thousands of people for any given set of rules and laws and authority that they have, that they interact on that edge. Some portion of people in any demographic will be dirtbags, a 10% scumbag theory. I don't care if it's one, if I'm wrong by a factor of 10. But there's going to be some portion of people, I don't care if they're priests or lawyers, school teachers or gardeners, there's going to be some portion in any demographic that are going to be shitbags. And they will be abusive. And there's also a component of them in there that will be incompetent. Even if they mean well, even if they're decent, they're not good at their job. Now, we all know this is true. We don't like to admit it unless we're full, full grown ass men and women and we're willing to admit it. We all, when I say there will be a group within the group that are incompetent and not good at their job. If you've ever had a job with more than a couple people involved, You've had a coworker, you're like, they need to get rid of this motherfucker. Like, he's got to go. And they won't get rid of him. Dorothy and I call it the Edna principle. Because she used to work in an office with a, with a, a fairly large office with, with nurses. And they had one nurse named Edna who spent most of her day, do, you know, back and forth in a chair like this, swinging back and forth, you know, just in her little rotating chair, doing nothing, doing a quarter of the work that every other nurse did on the back side of that office, on the back end of the office, and got away with it. So we all know that there's incompetent, right? And we all know that there is abusive. So you're going to give the state a power. It's going to have enforcers. And within those enforcers, some portion will be, you know, what they say, bad apples, which I think is a stupid. You don't call a person who has a gun and a badge and a taser and a bunch of other people that will back them up a bad apple. You call them what they are when they're abusive to their authority. You call them shitbags, not bad apples. So this is when we had this whole thing where people lost their minds, you saw it with the Karenism, Right. Boy Karens and girl Karens both screaming at people. And where it was the worst was when the people around the Karen cheered them on. And mob mentality kicked into this authoritarian problem. And I know many of you think, well, Jack, is, I, 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 I agree with a lot of what you say. Tune in. I learn a lot from you. But this anarchism thing, I just I can't get on board with it. It's the best case for it ever. Any authority 
granted like this without market forces to intervene and without karma to intervene. In other words, the person can be abusive and get away with it. You can have somebody like a female state trooper shoot a man in cold blood on a video Claim he reached into a vehicle when you can look at the vehicle and say it's not possible because the window was closed. And she shot the man in cold blood who had his hands up from behind and got away with it. This will be the result. So we have to think really hard about what level of power we give the state in our lives. And the reality is, unfortunately, that ship has sailed. The amount of authority that the state has over the average person's life right now is insane. And it's one of the many reasons that I'm so big on getting out of the cities and especially the flashpoint cities. It's not only that your fellow man becomes a danger. It's not only that the enforcers fail to enforce the actual property right laws. Go to San Francisco or L.A. right now and watch somebody take a literal deuce on the front step of a shop owner and get away with it. And if that shop owner pushes them away... They'll arrest them for assault. That's bad. But what's worse is you get into a position where law enforcement will, and that's actually, those of you that saw that go against the window again, I wonder where my spider is. That's an ant. It's a freaking ant. Maybe he knows I tell the ant and the grasshopper story. Uh, but there's an ant on my camera right now. Um, you get into a position where law enforcement is basically like, we can't do anything for you, but we can do stuff to you. You get the, the whole Somalia thing. How many of you guys and gals that are anarchists or at least full-on libertarians, because I, as I always say, all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists. Like you're minarchist, libertarian, or anarchist. When you, when you try to talk to somebody about this, they say something stupid like, we'll move to Somalia. Well, first of all, why should I have to move to Somalia to be left alone? But Somalia is not an anarchy. Somalia is the, the, the end result that these nation states always end up in. The authoritarianism can still be used against you. It just won't be used to help you. You tell me that's not what's going on in our what I call flashpoint cities. Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, Philadelphia, Atlanta. That law-abiding people, good people, still suffer at the hands of authority, and yet criminal elements get away with their behavior. And so one of the reasons I'm telling you to get out of these cities is because I want to minimize the impact of your fellow man. But what I also want to do, I want to reduce your contact with the state. And the, the further out from these places you are, and the more sparse the population the less interaction you have with the interactive edge of the state. In other words, you are left alone more. It's not that nobody's ever bothered. It's that the state, despite all of its puffing up of chest and acting all important, does have, even federal authorities, limited resources. And that's why they like high-density populations. It's really easy to enforce rules on people in a subdivision And it's even easier to, you know, to, to enforce rules on people that live in high rises in the middle of an urban center. If you think about it, kind of like the hardest place to enforce rules is rural America, where people are spaced out. People are on like minimum couple acre lots. 
Like those are the places. Think about when all the COVID stuff happened. Like that's where people were just like, that's, that's nice that you have rules. We don't care. They didn't even, they didn't even argue. They just didn't do it. There was nothing that could be done. But as soon as you had to go to the store, you had to deal with some kid that makes $14 an hour staying at the door telling you, you have to wear a mask. So as soon as the population density go up, enforcement becomes easier. So next would be a subdivision. Why do you think your government loves them so much? Right? Why do you think they built almost the entire housing model in, in America on subdivisions? Because it was a better way to live? No. Because it was a better way to control people. So then the next level would be a subdivision that's self-policing with an HOA on top of it. Right. And then the next would be like apartment complexes. And the next would be like these these techno high rise city buildings. Why do you think they love high density? Because they can control you more. So I'm not just worried about being in L.A. and getting shivved by somebody walking down the street or having my business ruined. I'm also worried about how many contacts will I have with enforcement agents of the state? And the answer is a lot. And, and here's a perfect example. You Right now in California, if you shoplift under a certain amount of money, the cops won't even show up to arrest you anymore. I remember like a buddy of mine getting a free ride in a cop car and a pretty good scare over a couple packs of bubble gummy stuck in his pocket when I was a kid. Right? You guys remember when it was like that? Like, you would go to a convenience store and it would say, like, we prosecute all shoplifting no matter how small. And they did. Right? So, in California now, you go shoplift a couple hundred dollars worth of shit, and the cops can't even be bothered. But some kid showed up at a school, refused to wear a mask, and they called the police, and the police came and removed the kid from the school. This is a little kid. Do you understand what I'm saying about authoritarian assholism? And what you have is a lot of these cops, to be fair, they want to do their job, and they literally can't, so they're frustrated. And what happens when you're frustrated and you can't do what you need to do or what you're supposed to do with people who deserve it, but you can do it with the people that don't? You end up acting out. You end up being an asshole. So one more time. Get out, get out, get out. Next up, gentleman emailed me in California. First advice, get out of California. He's not leaving, though. Um, what he said is he's leaving his job. He's going to a new job. But the old job, they can't find somebody to replace him. It's a pretty good place to be in. So they made him a deal that he's basically going to act while well, he has his new full-time job. He's also going to act as a consultant back to them. And I think he said he wants to do it, or they want him to do a DBA, which is a doing business as form. And doing an LLC in California is really expensive. It's like 800 bucks just to set up an LLC. Well, an interesting thing is you can set up an LLC in Delaware if you want to, and it'll be about 100 bucks for a registered agent. But I don't know how that plays with California laws. Now, normally my response to this would be CPA and tax attorney. That you should you should talk to your CPA because everybody that, that does anything beyond a 1040EZ form should have a good CPA. Even if it's a Jackson, like somebody at Jackson Hewitt or something like that, as long as you know the individual always doing your taxes instead of like somebody at the front of a Walmart store, those big firms are not bad, especially for what most of you guys need. Um, and then if you're getting into this, this is where you find a local tax attorney and at least pay them for an hour of consultation. 
In this case, I would say probably not because it's a temporary arrangement and a corporation like an S corp or an LLC lives for a long time unless you terminate it. And sometimes you terminate it and you end up having to tell the state over and over again, like I have with one in particular. It does stop asking us to file. We terminated it. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. Well, we need you to file your annual. No, there's no more like that, right? So you end up in these situations sometimes like that. So to me, this could be something that could last a year or it could be something that could last like three weeks. They might find the magic person that can do your job three weeks from now. And now you have a corporation for no real reason. So in your case, I would do a DBA, but he was actually asking about tax advantages. When you're talking about building an actual business, there are some distinct tax advantages of different structures over doing a sole proprietorship or running a DBA, which is basically a sole proprietorship with a little fancy formatted to it. But it's limited. Almost anything you can deduct with an LLC, you can deduct as a sole proprietor. All, not all, almost. Certainly most people in a limbo situation where you're not sure, it's not enough to warrant the paperwork and shit. It's really not. An LLC is exceptional, though, at letting you divide income and ownership and management. That's that's what an LLC does really well. Something like an S-Corp will allow you to do things like pay a certain amount of your salary, not as a salary, but pay a certain amount of your salary as a distribution. As long as you pay yourself a living wage, you can say my salary is $50,000 a year, And I made a hundred thousand dollars in corporate distribution as the owner of the corporation. Why would you do that? Well, because that's, that's not, that's not labor based income. It's not, it's not, you know, being paid by the hour, being paid by salary. It's not even a bonus structure. It's a distribution. It's a dividend. Well, you know what it's not subject to? Social security. So you could save a ton of money every year with, with that type of a, a structure. So that again, that's, and how does that apply in California? I don't know, but I'll tell you what's going on here. The company retaining you as a consultant doesn't want to call you a contractor because that's way more difficult than it used to be, but it's very difficult in California. California has their fingers into everything. They're an exact example of when authoritarians never stop looking for more authority and more control. And so what California wants to do is clamp down on evil employers who call you a contractor and don't do all the things employers have to do, like provide insurance and do tax withholding and all that, and give you a 1099 and say you're just a contractor. They've made that really hard. So by doing DBA, their billing will be company to company. And so you are going to invoice them. In this situation, I don't think you have any need of an LLC or a corporation. However, given that you're in California, it might be worth a five-minute phone call to someone in the tax attorney business and say, look, I'll, I'll give you 50 bucks. I just want to bounce this off you. And, and you'll probably find somebody willing to take your call that's informed. Because I, this is where I, no matter how much I know or think I know about this stuff, when you get into state variance, So moving little lowercase state, Texas versus California versus Florida, there's so many permeations. You need to talk to a local expert about, well, what does this mean to you? Because the company you're leaving, they'll tell you anything because it's not their problem, right? 
It's not their problem. So you need to make sure there's not some sort of a like business license or something you're going to end up on the hook for, even if you do a DBA. You might be a $200 fee to be a business license or something. You, the reason you would do that is you might be able to go to the company and say, so I'm going to have to buy this business license. And you, the reason I'm doing this is you asked, right? You asked me to do this. So I think you should pay for it because you can always say, you know what? I don't think I want to do this. Here's my notice that I already gave you. I really think I need to dedicate myself full time to my new job. So if you don't want to pick up the cost that this is to me, I don't think I want to do it. Except it sounds like it's a good enough windfall that the guy does want to do it. But just, you know, your negotiation is about being willing to say no. If the other side doesn't believe you're willing to say no, they have no reason to negotiate. That doesn't mean you're a dick. It means that you come off with an air of confidence that, hey, look, I don't really need to do this. I like the idea that I like the extra income and I want to help you, but I will not, I will not be, you know, paying a, a bunch of money out of pocket. I'm not going to make my life incredibly inconvenient to do it. We need to have a stipulation and, and a contract and we need to both understand our sides. And I would tell you the other thing I would do with this. I would want, if it was me, I would want a duration on the contract and a guaranteed billable minimum per month for that duration. Because they could find the magic man next week. We don't need you anymore. So I went through all this bullshit. You know, I would say like a minimum six months, you know, minimum monthly retainer six months. Well, we don't want to do that. Well, then I don't want to do it either. See how that works. Then I don't, then I don't want to do it either because you're asking me to make allowances in my life to do this thing for you with no guarantee on my end. And you could say, we'll put a buyout in the contract. So if you, you know, maybe you write me a check at the end if, if, if we're, you know, there's a certain amount per month and maybe you take, it's 80% of that to buy the contract out. So if they owed you like 10 grand, they could write you a check for $8,000 and tell you to go away. Again, the willingness to say no is how you get to negotiation without being a dick about it. You just state your case. Like you're asking me to do this. I am willing to do this, but I'm only willing to do this for some guarantee of compensation. And if they say, well, what if you're not living up to your end of the bargain? Well, there's measurables and things like that and, and deliverables and you put that in the contract. And by the way, make them, make them draft this contract. Make them dra always make the other party draft a contract like this. And the reason you do that, there's a basic principle of common law. If there is a ambiguity in a contract, Meaning that this thing, the court looks at it and goes, it could go this way or it could go that way. It's not perfectly clear. The language could have been better. It will inherently be seen if the judge does his job. It should benefit the party that did not draft the contract. So I got A and B, and B benefits you and A benefits them. They wrote the contract. As long as that's what you're making, like you want the benefit, then it's B. You, you get the benefit because you didn't draft it. So the onus to be accurate with the legal language was on them. It makes perfect sense if you think about it. All right. Moving on. Um, just want to give you four headlines of, and all the links are in the write up that will be on the other side of this on the audio side. Link to that again about one hour after the live stream ends in the show notes below. Um, with plunging enrollment, a seismic hit to public schools. That's by the New York Times. If you want to read that one, it's behind a paywall. I will not pay the New York Times to read their crap. Uh, just a little side note there. 
you know, all of these giant megacorps that want you to subscribe for four bucks a month or ten bucks a month that are bullshit, they're losing so much money by not integrating Bitcoin with Lightning. I mean, because if that said you can read this one article for a quarter, I would have paid. I could have paid them right like with the Aldi extension, and I would have paid them to read it. But I didn't because I'm not subscribing to the New York Times because I think they're shit 90% of the time. Uh, next, though, here's another headline. Enrollment losses in cities prompt talk of school closures. That was in kind of a newsletter type thing for teachers. Uh, shrinking enrollment in big cities may force public schools shut. Let's see who that one was with. I don't remember. Uh, CS Monitor, Christian Science Monitor. And nearly 2 million fewer students have enrolled in public school That was on the Hill, and that's this year. That's not since COVID started. That's this current enrollment period, two million less than the prior enrollment period, which already had massive losses. I think we're in the neighborhood of growth here from the beginning of the COVIDs to now of somewhere between four and a half to five million dollars or five million students. That's significant. And that's where I talked last week about the fact that you have in Minneapolis these these teacher layoffs, and everybody's talking about the uh, the racial component to it. They basically said all disadvantaged groups will be retained, and all white teachers will be laid off first. I think the, there has been some give and take in that, and that kind of went away. But that's what they said. But that's what everyone was talking about. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why aren't we talking about the fact that you had to lay teachers off? Aren't they all heroes that don't wear capes? What have you? I had a very angry teacher from at me last week. You must not know many teachers. I do. I know plenty of teachers. You don't know how underpaid they are. Do you know that the salaries of teachers as as as, as government employees they're they're available? You can actually look them up. So don't give me your shit for somebody that works 180 days a year if you're lucky. That has to rob a post office to get fired. And don't cry to me. You got to spend 500 bucks on school supplies to decorate your freaking classroom. Talk to a mechanic about that. I have a video about that from years ago that I'll link to in the notes if I remember. Uh, but if you if you get on YouTube and you just look up teachers live in a bubble crying, you'll find it. And I'll give you a trigger warning right now if you don't like to hear the truth about this sort of thing. But this is not about teachers as, 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 a, as a group of people. The problem in the state school system is the same thing we already talked about today. Authoritarianism. I will talk to your child about sex when they're in kindergarten, whether you like it or not, and shut up. And you're a domestic terrorist if you don't like it. One example. One example. We will groom your children. We will bring drag queens into the library for special programs. We'll do it. And that's not the only problem. That's just kind of a real in-your-face problem right now. A real in-your-face problem. I, I've been astounded at the number of people on the left that have started to push back against this and say that we were the ones, that, uh, the liberty-minded people, we closed the schools. It's our And we did it just to make this happen. We did it, right? The, the, the anarchists, the libertarians, and the republicans are really the ones that actually closed the school so that they could shove religious education at the children. You freaking dimwits. Any parent who really wanted to do that could have done it anytime they wanted to. You're causing the problem, and you can't even see that you're the cause. 
probably because you're a product of this system. But this system is beginning to die. And Crystal here says some are going to private schools too. Our kids go to a private school and it's, it is full from three year old classes up to eighth grade. There isn't, this isn't the only one like this either. Yeah. There's plenty of parents going, if I can find the money to do private school, I'm going to do that. And there's plenty of parents beginning to actually start to work together and develop homeschool solutions. You know, I recommend to sell us because it works. It's not free, but the best things tend not, you know, the best things in life are free. No, they're not. If they were, you wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't need money. You know, the best things in life include like being able to eat, running water. Uh, I'm going to have to pay some money to make my water run again and I'll do it. Running water is a miracle of modern man. The ability to flush your toilet, it's not free. It could be free. No, your work is not free. Your labor is not free. People that go out and they live a freaking life, you like climbing into dumpsters. You could spend that time doing something else. I'm not going to put you down for it, but don't give me the best things in life for free. The best services in life, the top quality services cost money because the people that are good at providing them, they know they're good at what they do. But if you can scale something like a sales does, then you can provide a top quality education for $80 a month. And we pay it for our grandchildren so that our kids don't have to. You have to find your own solutions. But this, this system is dying. Uh, can somebody post that for me and I'll put it up. So I gotta, I gotta keep rolling here. Hunters wants to know a link to my homeschool program. He can't spell. Uh, it's a Cellus Academy. If anybody who puts it up, I will highlight it and that way he will be able to see it. Uh, I would appreciate that. Um, cause I want to keep going. I want to talk about preserving food with Salt. This was something I was asked about. And I think this person is probably talking about more like cured meats like bacon and capricola and wonderful things like that. And I want to do another show. I've talked about using meat and I'm sorry, smoke and salt before. Uh, I've talked about making biltong a lot, which is kind of like a curing method for beef versus most curing that's more poured pork. And I'll probably do that soon. So I won't go real long on this today. But what I wanted to actually talk to you guys about, especially homesteaders that are growing your own meat, the protein that has the longest history of being used by simply salting it and not doing anything else to it is pork. And there's a reason, and I think many people are unaware of this, and it's really awesome. Uh, if you go watch J.A. Townsend's, there's there's somebody put it up right there. That's Acellus Academy. So that's how you spell it, hunters, and uh, A-C-E-L-L-U-S. Academy, Solace Academy, just look it up. And you want to do the Roger Billings Scholarship, you can just look that up when you get on there. You see where it is. It sounds too good to be true. It's not. Kid watches one video a week and leaves a comment, and your tuition goes from 250 to 80 bucks. Totally worth doing, and it's good that they watch that video. It's an hour a week of extra education. Uh, anyway, so it's been pork. And I think when you say salt pork, again, a lot of people think of like, like fat back, salted fat back or something. No, no, no. Mostly this was the lean cuts of meat. And they would literally take big giant barrels, like wooden barrels, and they would just pack all the meat from a, you know, a big barrel might have a whole pig or two pigs. It might even have the head in it. And they would just completely cover it, coat it with salt. And it would have an incredibly long shelf life. Um, soldiers during the Civil War, ate a lot of it. Revolutionary War ate a lot of it. Sailors ate a lot of it. 
Very common protein. Uh, and there's a, the reason is weird. If you do this, right, if you do this with beef, it will preserve the beef. The beef will become hard as a rock. When you soak the beef and cook the beef, it will never be really pleasing to eat. Like you can make jerky and stuff like that. But if you just do what I'm talking about, you're not talking about smoke and cure and flavor. You're just talking about here's the meat, hammer it with salt until it completely pulls all the moisture out of it. It will be hard forever. Pork, when you do this, you can soak it, and then you can boil the salt out of it, and it tastes a lot like slow. Like it's it's not gonna you're not gonna make a, a beautifully grilled pork chop on the grill with it, right? With a nice sear, like no, but like pork that you would make into more of a stew or something like that. Anyway, that is what you'll end up with with pork, and it's the only meat that really does that. And I think it would be for for those of you that want to know more about how to preserve food long term. One of the things that we can really do is we can go look back. Well, what did people do before the systems? Okay, this guy's gone. Give me just a second. Some troll that shows up just to start shit. Am I being an authoritarian asshole? No, because the guy shows up and yet, what's going on here? You guys are a bunch of doomsday people. Got to go. I just don't have time for people like that in our live streams. Anyway, um, go back and look at the systems that were used before the systems were worried about failing existed. And you'll find that this was one of the staple proteins. And if you think about it, it makes sense. One, you have a reliable method. And they sold big barrels, but they even sold small barrels of pork. They even sold small barrels so people could make their own salt pork. Like, so you would go buy some fresh cuts And then you would use the fresh cuts in the limited time you had, and you would salt the rest of it. There were even recipes as we began to transition out of this mead that still called for it because there was a unique character to it. And people didn't die. People didn't get trichinosis as long as it was fully cooked. And you would fully cook it if you were eating this kind of meat because you needed to. Um, it didn't spoil, and if it was undersalted and did spoil – You, it, you, it would be obvious that that happened. And pigs grow much faster than beef. They are overall small, especially at the time in the breeze where they were working with smaller animals. They're easier for many people that would live the homestead life of the time to raise. It was very common that naval vessels would basically find an island. And it just screwed a lot of shit up, by the way, too. It's not like it was a good practice overall. But it would find an island that they could then say, you know what, we can stop here. And they would just throw a bunch of pigs on it. And the pigs would survive. And the pigs would breed. And then when they stopped on that island, they could kill pigs and have pork to eat fresh. But then, you know, you can make as much salt as you want from the ocean, you know, and, and salt's pretty cheap. Even at the time we're talking here, you know, it gotten much There were no more wars over salt by this time. And uh, you could salt more pork and resupply off the island. I just think it's really, really interesting that we that this was such a big part of human existence for hundreds of years, and we have almost no knowledge of it today. And again, Jay Townsend and Son, uh, his YouTube channel, he has a ton of stuff on using it, cooking with it, how to do it yourself, how to you know to, to learn it. 
I think it's a great skill to learn. Anyway, that's all we'll do on that one for today. Um, one Bitcoin question today, and I'm going to go quick with it. How does a hardware wallet provide additional security if you can still restore it with the same seed phrase? So when you have a Bitcoin wallet, and wallet really is a terrible name, but we're going to use it because it's what everybody calls it, you don't have any money in the wallet. So it's the first important thing to understand. It's just a GUI. Graphic user interface. Your Bitcoin exists in the blockchain. You need certain information to be able to do things with it, like move it, transfer it, sign transactions. And a wallet is just a means by which you do that. So when somebody says something like, I have all my Bitcoin in my Exodus wallet, actually, no. You have all the information necessary to manage the Bitcoin that you have the ability to control through Exodus as an interface. If we start there, then it becomes really clear. The whole idea that, well, it's not any more secure because you can still restore it with a seed phrase. The odds of somebody guessing a seed phrase right are about the same of picking the right molecule out of the universe. So when people get a hold of a seed phrase, it's always because like somebody like put it in a text file on their desktop of their computer and called it Bitcoin seed phrase dot text. Don't do that. Like, people don't just guess seed phrases. And I, I think one of the things that people don't realize is the seed phrase itself, those 12 words, it's only the four, first four letters. And those those four letters create a numerical reference. And it's basically a great big long-ass code of numbers that that phrase calls up based on a fixed relationship between the first four letters of a word and and, and numbers. You can actually look it all up. So no one's going to guess your seed phrase. Now, somebody might steal it. And that's where we start to get into the difference here. Not directly, but it's the same but different, man. If you have, for instance, I got my cell phone here. And you have crypto on this device or the ability to access crypto on this device. And you're using Exodus, Coinami. I don't care what wallet you're using. It's always connected to a network. It's either on the cellular network, on your Wi-Fi network. There's a way to get into it from the outside. There's a way to infiltrate it with things like spyware. There's a way to gain visibility into it. And there's also the, like, generally people walk around with this thing in their hand or their pocket all the time every day. So somebody could come up to you and make you unlock your phone for them and make you give them the passcode to your wallet and make you send it to them. Or who knows what? If you don't, you say, ah, but I don't have it on my phone. I'm not that stupid. I have it on my computer. So I, this is the way I used to explain antivirus to people when people were opposed to using antivirus. It's like going out and having sex with prostitutes and not using condoms to not have antivirus on your computer. Your, your, your computer is having sex with every other computer that's having sex with every other computer, millions of computers interacting and could be passing anything in and out because you have no firewall. Right? Okay. Now you're in that situation, even with, with like, have you ever had a virus? Have you ever had spyware? And so now it's on your computer and it's also always on. When you have a hardware wallet, let's just say that this is, this is actually the remote control of my air conditioner, my little window unit. Um, but let's just say it's a hardware wallet. This is not connected to any network 
until I connect it. It's connected while I do my business, and then it's disconnected. That's what makes it cold. And they say, like, this is a hot wallet. This is a cold wallet. So it's the fact that nobody can get into this. There's no way in. It doesn't have a Wi-Fi card. It has a physical connection that I make to a device. And I do the thing that I need to do, and then I go away. And it's also the case that it doesn't need to be connected to receive. If I have an address that is controlled with this device and somebody sends it to me, I don't need to plug it in. I can go look on Block Explorer and see that the transaction went through. There's even ways that you can create kind of on-the-fly new addresses for every transaction, and you don't have to plug in to do it. I don't want to get into that today. But the big thing is that this device is not connected to a cellular network or a Wi-Fi network or something like that, and this one is. So small amounts of money here, large amounts of wealth stored here. That's the reasoning behind it. It has nothing to do with the seed phrase per se. You always have to be uber careful and protect your seed phrase. Next up. Next. Next. Um, I wanted to just finish with this today. It's just an idea I have in my head that I've been bouncing around for a long time. And Dorothy and I keep talking about it. We keep asking ourselves why we haven't already started the process of doing it. We're thinking about building out a tiny house-driven income property, not a community. A community is a whole bunch of hippies living there in your tiny house or whatever, you know, demographic you target, a bunch of preppers in tiny houses. No, no, we're talking like find a good piece of property, build a tiny house, and start renting it with like Airbnb, hip camp, whatever. As soon as it has cash flow, it makes sense, build another one, do it again, and build however many make sense to keep occupancy up and cash flow positive on that property, and then at some point you're like, okay, that's the that's as many people as you want there at one time. And I wanted to kind of bounce some ideas off you guys and see what you guys throw at me with what I think would make it work. So I see two ways this works. And I see this when, when we rent Airbnbs or when we use HipCamp as a consumer. And generally for us, it's that there is a thing there that we want access to. Like we're going to go, God help us, we're going to go to central, Cal- actually northern California next year to wine country in Mendocino. Um, assuming insanity doesn't return to California's policy on, on the COVIDs. Um, and so we're looking for an Airbnb that's close to the places we want to go, the the redwoods we want to visit and stuff like that. Like there's a tourist draw in the area already. And therefore anything that's available close by benefits from that tourist draw. Texas doesn't have a whole lot of stuff like that. Especially in the, the other side of that is that makes development more expensive. Property's more expensive. Labor's more expensive. Everything taxes, everything's more expensive. The more rural you go, the less expensive development is. So then what do you have to do? If you want to build something like the successful instead of having the unit stay empty 50% or 80% of the time. To me, you need to build the facility itself to where we can go on vacation here and we might leave, but we don't have to. So like the first thing I'm thinking, and, and my wife's completely on board with this, 
it either needs to already have or has the ease of installation of a large pond. Something you would think you'd probably use the word lake, though I think there is a technical size that it might not necessarily meet. But, you know, something in the neighborhood of like an acre, acre and a half of, of open water. You got fishing, you got boating. You got views, you got wildlife. That's like one thing we think like straight out of the gate. Um, the units themselves have to be really nice. Like you can put some communal stuff in, but it, you have to not need it in general. I think glamping, you can have like communal bath and like a communal laundry. And because it's nice to be, I love being able to do laundry when I'm on the road. Even if it's like all you do is the day before you come home, you throw everything you've used into the washing machine and dry it. And just even if it's wrinkled, it goes back and you go home with clean clothes. Like that's a big deal to me. So I don't think individual units would need that. So like a communal center, I'm thinking like a game room where kids can go and kids that are there with their parents and other parents' kids can play like pool, video game, stuff like that. I think that's kind of the way to develop something like this. And then it starts to take on some unique things, right? It can be a corporate retreat, like where all the units get rented. So we're just kind of thinking that way. I would love to hear from anybody that's done this successfully. I've had people on that they've done some, a few glamping sites and stuff like that, but I'm thinking more of uh, the word, I guess, would be a little bit more upscale. And actually, built like Hunter says, a KOA with tiny houses is my idea. That's kind of what I'm thinking there. You know, and maybe you put in three or four really nice RV pads as well, and you can bring your own or you can rent a tiny house. It It, it just seems like the Airbnb market is becoming very risky as far as I'm going to buy this five-bedroom house and rent it out for $400 a month. And if I don't make it 20 days a month, I'm going to lose my ass on the leverage. Where a slow roll development, because I start, I started running numbers, and I'm like, you know, you could probably put $25,000 to $40,000, depending on what you're doing, into an individual tiny home. And with conservative estimates, completely pay for it in 12 to 24 months. Well, if you're in that position with real estate, where you can pay go with development that fast, then you want to do as much of it as you can, as quick as you can. And then you have the underlying equity of the property continues to go up, and you would have an exit strategy of simply, I have an income property that I can sell off. And Amel says, why not a permaculture camp? Because I want a broader market. Now, you could certainly do permaculture things there, but I don't want to live there, right? I, I don't want to live there, and I don't want to be tied to a place. I want it close enough that I can manage it, but I don't want to live there. I don't want to do day-to-day -day management. I want, to, I want to build it and market it, right? Now, could you do permaculture things? I look at this and go, if I developed a big enough property, there could be one of our TSP workshops, and instead of being at Nine Mile Farm, was there. That would be cool. That would be really cool. But I think what happened, and, and you know, Cutie Pie says could cause friction with neighbors. Rural people don't like this sort of stuff. I don't care. The, the 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 whole point there is you pick a piece of property that doesn't have people around it, and trust me, there's lots of them. There's lots of them. And uh, here's another chaos says you can buy a, a tiny home park mobile log cabin ready to go for 40 grand that's the other thing that we looked at so we've been looking at a lot of people that have done things like this and there's two types of people when it comes to these developments they buy a piece of property and they live on it 
and they take three years to build a single unit out because they do all the work themselves to save money. And then there's the type of person that says, I want this thing as close to turnkey as possible. They pay somebody to, to prepare the uh, the foundation area, and a truck comes and sets it there, and you plug it in, and it goes for rent the next day. That's the model I'm looking for. That's the model I'm looking for right there. And maybe over time you build a couple really cool high-end ones that are the special ones, the most expensive, the ones that if you had a wedding event happen that the bride and groom would take. But I think that like growing something like this far more quickly than slowly, because one of the things I've seen, and one of the things that makes me not a huge fan of the whole tiny house movement, is I watch these people, well, I'm going to save money. And by the time they're done, they have $200,000 into a freaking tiny house, which is nothing but a glorified RV. Hunters is on to something here, though. He said, maintenance and upkeep, hire a guy to live there. Exactly. My thought is to find a place that either has a okay, decent home, um, and then that could be a part of the compensation for an on-site manager, or to do something like immediately put in some RV pads and then say, you can bring, and I think this is actually a better thing because you're not my tenant now and it is contingent upon your employment. You bring your RV, you hook it up, you live there, you manage my facility. If you suck, you get replaced. And, and that's something that has, that's the one thing that we have held back on is knowing that everything will get done. Because one of the things that makes Airbnb doable in places that have the tourist side draw, there's literally entire companies of people that do maintenance and upkeep that have developed around them. And this is, we've seen this, like we've, I've done this in Broken Bow, the Texas coast, uh, et cetera, where you, you end up and you realize that like there are people that live here that make their living off this and there's lots of them. So one falls through, you pick somebody else up. Sometimes they're individuals, but a lot of times it's gone to the point where there's literally companies. Like, it might be Mary or it might be Susie or it might be Bob that does the cleanup on your property, but we charge this much for cleanup of a house your size. And somebody will be there and somebody will do it. That makes that type of development more attractive, having that infrastructure available. So I'm not sure what we're going to do or how we're going to do it yet, but we're definitely, you know, we're definitely looking at the fact that this would be a good business model. And it makes a lot of sense as a prepper because then you have this developed property and maybe eventually multiple developed properties that you don't necessarily have to rent out. You could block off times for and things like that. So again, any of you that have actually done this, if you want to reach out to me by email, jack at the survival podcast.com TSPC in the subject line. With that, we've wrapped things up today. I want to remind you guys one way you can help support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day for you guys that are in the video right now is the Spiderwire Wolf Tackle Bag. Um, I'm not a gear snob, and I'm not a guy that really gets excited about something like a bag. I've had this bag seven years. I flippin' love it. It's ever-loving huge. There's a video down here at the bottom. You can go look it up uh, on the site today, and you can see all the stuff that I'm able to keep in this bag to where I can like see a place I want to fish, pull the truck seat up, reach in the back and go fishing no matter where I am and no matter what environment in. 
these telescopic rods in this video, they don't make them anymore, so you'd have to find a substitute, but I have a list of all the stuff that's in it right down there. But I want to tell you one of the small things. It's really not a small thing that I love about this bag. Those of you that are looking at this video, you see right here these four spools of line. Both sides of this bag have a clip like this. And it has this, this like bushing is exactly the, a little bit smaller than the diameter to fit through the lines. And what this does is it keeps tension on those reels. So as long as you know that the right way to do a spool, I don't care if it's wire, cable, or toilet paper, is you come off the top. And you do that, you can you can uh, load up a reel with line off of that bag the way you see it right there, and it will work. I don't mean good. I don't mean acceptable. It will work perfectly every time. You'll have no twist in your line at all. You'll have no overage because it's sized perfectly where the spool pushes up against the bag itself. If that was the only thing this bag did and then had a hole to throw shit in, it would be great. But it has... Great, it's great set up with dividers and things like that and ways to organize your equipment. And again, it doesn't seem that big, but it's ever loving huge, the amount of gear you can carry with it. Most of the time when I go fishing, all I take is that bag, I throw it in what I call my carrying cart with a couple of rods. I don't always use the uh, collapsible rods in it. I'll, I'll take my carrying cart, which is basically a soccer mom cart with a couple of rod holders on it. That, throw that bag in there and I'm good to go. And if I am out and about and I see a place I want to try, I will use the, the telescopic rods that I keep inside of it. Again, you can watch the video on that. This bag rocks on sale today, on sale for like 45 bucks. Again, I have put this thing through hell. I'm hard on gear. I'm abusive to gear. I'm not just hard on it. And I have had it seven years and it still works perfectly. And that says something because again, I am abusive to gear. Uh, so anyway, that wraps things up today. I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the show today. If you, uh, if you want to, uh, do value for value, remember you can always listen to the podcast on fountain.fm. Tomorrow I have a Bitcoin breakout episode for you. I don't remember who it is, but I know what will be cool. Then we got an interview Wednesday. Uh, then we have a just jack show on Thursday, expert council on Friday. And hopefully tomorrow I'll be telling you that the water's back on with that's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way